Dave Max Cork History Matters, brought to you by Red FM. Gabriel Doherty of UCC History Department, thanks for joining me again. It's another Cork History Matters podcast chat. We kind of covered 1920, although I'm going to get you to just go back into it before we look, because it all changed the War of Independence in 21. Things were different. And there were some major, major events that we've covered, many of them in in previous podcasts. Uh, But one thing I think we missed out on, and I read it in the uh, Atlas of the Irish Revolution, a UCC publication that someone was kind enough to give me as a gift. It's a a tome. It is a big one. It's the thing I use to prop up my iPad (laughs) with a load of National Geographics when I'm doing Zoom calls. But in it, I, I read about the 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 Mallow, uh, well, the burning of Mallow, you know, which almost pre- preceded the burning of Cork, you know. So mm. everyone knows the burning of Cork, but there was another. Well, there were many burnings. Well, there were many. I mean, <laughs> I suppose this is the point: is that throughout 1920, there had been a policy of unofficial reprisal. Now, when I say it's almost a contradiction in terms to say a policy of unofficial reprisal, but so frequent had the reprisal burnings and shootings become. Uh, And so little attempt made to rein them in uh, on the part of military and political authorities that you can only describe what was happening as a policy uh, at the same. So it's happening in Mallow. It was happening uh, in many, many parts, even before the burning of Cork uh, and the evening of the Battle of Kilmichael. Uh, a number of buildings around Cork City and in Douglas, uh, where I, I'm living myself, uh, were burnt down. That's two or three weeks before the, the, mm. the large-scale burning of Cork. So all of these these reprisals, uh, they were all well known about. Uh, they were very extensively reported upon in Ireland, Britain and America. Uh, and it, start, it, it started to bring the, the reputation of Britain through the mud. Mm. Uh, now, there, there, was, there was an alternative that could be there. You could either stop them or what the British decided to do uh, on the basis that they couldn't stop them, their, their troops were simply not amenable to, to control from above, is that they inaugurated a policy of official reprisal. <laughs> Whereby, well, that's one way to do it. Isn't well, exactly. It? So we can't stop the unofficial stuff. Let's <laughs> make it official. official. Uh, let me just check. So you did mention this in one of our podcasts, but again, reading it in the Atlas, it sort of brought it home to me a little more clearly. So everyone talks of Solo Head Beg in Tip as the the start of the War of Independence, but actually, what it suggests is there were incidents in Cork that preceded that. Oh, uh, there, there, there were. There, there have been a number of uh, conflicts and, and, and engagements between. Not so much the volunteers and the RAC, uh, but between crowds uh, and the RAC. Uh, on a number of occasions, in, there may have been a significant event in the war that might have gone badly, uh, a by-election results in 1917, 1918. Uh, and in a number of these occasions, there were baton charges by uh, the RAC, uh, and there was at least one fatality Uh during the course of these engagements. So long before the War of Independence is conventionally dated to have started, as you say, with the attack on Salahed Beg on the 21st of January 1919, there had been a, a burgeoning campaign uh, of civil disobedience and civil conf- and confrontation yeah. w- with the RAC. Uh, and so in that sense, Salahed Beg, while it was certainly an outlier in terms of, of the level of organised violence, it didn't come completely out of the blue. Mm. Uh, you'd mentioned like Middleton barracks. There were there were areas uh, in 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 wider West Cork, County Cork, where uh, uh, barracks were cleared out, and 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 they were. Well, this, this was the, a policy. The, the, English, a, the British forces were were forced back yeah, into. I mean, the it was a very city. astute move on the part of of the IRA to attack vulnerable RIC barracks. These would be places where. Uh, telegraph communications would be virtually impossible. It would be very easy to isolate them. Uh, a, a significant distance from any local garrison, whereby reinforcements could be sent. Uh, and, of course, the, the reinforcements themselves could only proceed very slowly lest they be attacked. So the RAC successfully cleared out throughout 1919 and then on into 1920. Uh, the RAC, which were the eyes and ears of the British establishment, and British government in Ireland, over large swathes of rural County Cork. Now, what was interesting is that in late 1920 uh, and on into 1921, there was a determined effort on the part of the British to try and re-establish themselves in places where they had vacated uh, the RSC barracks, partly to fly the flag uh, and to show that British rule had not been usurped, uh, and also partly as, or as a bridgehead 
by which they could then take the fight to the IRA in their heartland. And they very much did that in 21. John Borganovo in the Atlas gives stats about how Cork, you know, to, to, to back up this rebel Cork tag, the statistical evidence, 9% of Irish population, uh, but the pensions had uh, 16% of the IRA pensions post-war were accounted for by Cork. Uh, there, uh, 34% of the IRA full-time fighters served in County Cork. Uh, of the Cork Brigades, one of the 15 Irish divisions possessed 26... Uh, one of the 15 IRA divisions, the 1st Southern Division, possessed 26% of rifles, 25% of pistols, 58% of machine guns. The Cork IRA was responsible for roughly 86 of the 403 RIC dead, 21%. So again, all these stats just showing how Cork was the epicentre of it. But the Mallow thing, right, so they... they like I think it's the because um, it's the only barracks that was taken seemingly in the War of Independence. Well, I mean the, the, the interesting thing here, and it links back into what I've just been saying about about the barracks. They started to repossess some of the the smaller barracks uh, where these hadn't been destroyed, and most of them had been destroyed. So they are. So you have this contest between the RIC trying to re-establish themselves, backed by Crown forces. Most of these, of course, are, are black and tans rather than as well, the, the older RIC, uh, backed by auxiliaries and backed by uh, the military, uh, and the IRA not wanting this to happen. Now, of course, the, the barracks are now much better protected, uh, much more heavily defended in terms of the numbers of RAC there because there's been a concentration of force into the into the town, such as Mallow, such as Bandon and, and elsewhere. Uh, and you have all the various different barbed wire and, and mesh around the building so the bombs couldn't be dropped, etc. But, so, but they're still a target because they have weapons. You mentioned there about the statistics about weapons. While the IRA had in Cork had a disproportionate number of the weapons available nationally, they were still minuscule in total compared to what the British were, were holding in, compared to what the IRA could usefully have, have used uh, them for. You're still talking about sort of a handful of weapons, relatively speaking. And it, can, it still remained the fact that the, the barracks remained one of the best ways and to that's what obtain, it was exactly uh, and seemingly they, 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 the RIC were, had left the barracks they weren't there they were out on manoeuvres or whatever yeah. and this big operation went yes. into play took the barracks took the guns fled and the boys came back and were like we're not having this <laughs> and burned the town yeah and, and, and that was I mean it was atypical in the sense of a barrack being taken but the response that, that if you took did anything to the RIC and these are of course black and tans then they, they would do twice back. Um, and certainly the sheer audacity of, of sort of taking over their, their barracks uh, was something which they felt that they couldn't resist. But or they had to uh, respond to. But it's the policy of official reprisals which is really the, the nadir in some respects of, of the British campaign in Ireland. I mean, this was simply illegal. The British admitted it was illegal. There was no rule of law or of war that allowed you to, in effect punish the civilian population. Yes, for, for the action. You're, you're, and, and you're saying they almost did it to, to cover the fact that they couldn't control the well, unofficial and, aspect. And, and, and in effect, they had to publicly say this. <laughs> they had to accept, and certainly in the private documentation circulating, uh, the Army High Command and the Minister for War, Churchill, and was, was in effect saying, we cannot control our troops in order, therefore, to maintain some semblance of military control so that the discipline doesn't completely collapse. We have to allow officers to take our men out and burn down. And in many cases, of course, while some known Republican houses were burned down, for example, Michael Collins's house in West Cork is burnt down in the early months of 1921. In many cases, the reprisals were much, were much more blunt than that uh, and not directed towards any known Republicans. The, the creamery. The, cream, the creamery was the, the crucial target. Now, one can exaggerate that the number of creameries burned, but the point about it is, is that once you burnt a creamery, the, entire, the economy of that entire locality collapses, uh, or at least it's made much more difficult because the farmers then have to make arrangements to bring uh, their milk, etc., to another creamery, which may be 20, 30 miles away. Uh, so the attack on the creameries was systematic. Uh, the attack on the creameries was purposeful. 
and and it it really helped to discredit what the, the government was trying to do. On the on the one hand, they're saying that the IRA is a murder gang with no popular support. Well, in which case, why are you punishing the civilian population mm-hmm, yeah. for actions undertaken by the IRA? And if they're headed for a creamery 20, 30 miles away, I mean, bridges were blown up and, and, and uh, uh, dikes were d- dug through roads. And I yes. mean, you know, communication was, was not yes. easy. And they may well have been harassed at roadblocks along the way of by course. British forces. Of and course, so on. of course. Um, so we covered a lot of the major issues that occurred through 1920. Uh, over the Christmas period of 1920, it appears that there was tentative peace talks going on, a priest leading the way. Uh, but, effect- but effectively, the British were looking for... So seemingly a lot of what ended up happening in the treaty would have been allowed but the IRA had to make a st- uh, had to had to give up their weapons before it could happen and this was a sign that well, the, the, the IRA the, had been defeated and things, they weren't going to do that yeah i mean there were a number of things happening in as you say in around christmas uh, 1920. You mentioned their father, Michael O'Flanagan, a very senior Republican, vice president of Sinn Féin, had been at Pierce's side when he delivered the Grace Adoration that was done of Anrossa, uh, and was probably the most Republican-minded uh, priest. Uh, and, and he, recognising the the depths to which Ireland was, was plunging, uh, was, was inquiring about, well, what what is the British government willing to do? And there are a number of other steps. Gawi uh, County Council uh, at a, a specially convened meeting at which there was a relatively small number of uh, local councillors sent out again a message basically saying that we, we want peace. Um, to, 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 and basically to the British government. Or, or just, yeah, I mean, it passed a motion, but mm, this was mm, clearly mm, to be directed mm. towards the British government. So the British government, in effect, took this as a sign that their policy was working uh, and decided that and this comes back to the point about the change from official to... But murder by official. the throat is before this, though, isn't it? Murder by the throat, but but it is, that's the policy. The, the policy that's why George the policy we have of, this sorted, but actually... Exactly. So we but. keep the pressure on. Far from allowing the IRA breathing space, we now have them on the run, and we, we up the ante. Uh, and we So we continue with this policy of uh, official reprisal, but perhaps more importantly, more generally, they implement martial law. Uh, completely do away with any semblance of civil government uh, throughout Munster. And, of course, subsequently the, the threat was that martial law was going to be extended towards the 26 counties uh, as a whole. And what's so significant about that? I mean, like, obviously, like, civil law is no longer extant. Now the army make the law and, and, uh, and apply the law. And, you know, why is that so significant as a thing? Well, it, in one it shows sense, that society's broken down. Well, it way? does. I mean, it shows that civil government has broken down. It shows that respect for civil government is, is non-existent. Um, what I suppose one can exaggerate the, the direct impact of martial law simply because there's so much emergency law already in place between the defence of the Realm Act, the defence of the Realm Regulations and the Restoration of, of Order in Ireland Act and it was under that latter uh, statute that, for example, the executions uh, which were taking place in 1921 were organised. So martial law actually adds a surprisingly little amount to as were the battery of powers that the British already possess, but it certainly sends a, sim- a signal out that that the army is in control and that civil authority, civil writ, no longer runs. Um, so that is crucial. Of course, th- there is one major political development which is taking place at this time, and that's the process of implementing the Government of Ireland Act. That had been debated in Parliament throughout 1920. It had been passed and the the Royal Assent in December 1920. So in the spring of 1921, the British start putting in place the policy of partition, uh, creating the the Parliament of Northern Ireland, technically making provision for a Parliament of Southern Ireland, although it was clear that uh, Sinn Féin was going to sweep the board for any election that was held to that body. And, of course, that was something the British didn't want to to recognise. So, but they start dividing the the civil service, start recruiting civil servants to serve in the north. Uh, they have already got the Ulster Special Constabulary in place, and that helps, uh, as it were, provide some of the policing for this new area. Uh, and they make plans for elections and the creation of a parliament. Uh, James uh, uh, Edward Carson, interestingly, steps down as leader uh, of the Ulster Unionists, and James Craig steps in his place. Because uh, he was firmly against partition. As a Dublin Unionist, I mean, he, he looked upon with horror, uh, A, at any home rule being applied to Ireland, but B, in many respects, the worst form of home rule was what the British government had proposed, which was partitioned, because as far as he was concerned, that would put the likes of he and other Southern Unionists 
far more under the, the heel of a Dublin parliament than would have been the case in an all-Ireland institution, where at least they would have... And he was right. Things. Well, of course, I mean, and, and uh, well, things get a lot worse, of course, <laughs> for Carson uh, within the year by the end of 1921, because the British are not alone now proposing their home rule parliament uh, for Dublin, but they're proposing that Ireland become a self-governing dominion become in effect an independent state not just uh, with some subordinate powers but still with Westminster the, the supreme authority uh, that in 1921 from certainly from a southern unionist perspective and to a certain extent even from a northern unionist perspective the direction that things take after the truce uh, become very very worrying but that's to, to jump mm. ahead of course yes um, but things like if I was going to say like if if things weren't grubby enough already, they get grubbier in 1921 and things don't go well for the IRA. No, the, they don't. The British tactics improve. The, the British tactics improve. They sweep the countryside aerial. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, and I suppose the key... Now, one can exaggerate the the direct impact that aeroplanes made because the aeroplanes then would have to go back to the aerodromes, they would have to get the message to the troops and so on and so forth. There wasn't the ground-to-air radio communication that they would have. Uh, but it now. still shows the extent. That oh, absolutely. They're, they're, and absolutely. they developed their own little small units to combat well, the flying this columns. Is, it's more about literally what happens on the ground. Uh, that, that's about, I mean, the British really start now putting an effort into gathering intelligence. Uh, with the disappearance of the RIC in 1920, the, the intelligence gathering capability of the British had well nigh disappeared. But when the army now uh, is put back in place, they put a tremendous e emphasis upon their intelligence officers uh, developing the type of network of contacts that the police had. Um, and certainly in the spring of 1921, the IRA starts suffering uh, as a consequence of the improved intelligence that the British were receiving, that you do have a series uh, of ambushes that go wrong uh, and the British are alerted. And in fact, the IRA themselves become uh, the target. So in places like Dripsy, Monabi, Clonmult, Clahin. Uh, well, Clonmult's the, the kind of the real famous one, isn't it? It, it is, but the, the fact that this happens at... Multiple within, locations. Yeah, and, and almost within sort of a few days of each other, yeah. uh, the IRA have, have these very... Serious setbacks. Setbacks which, of course, were, proportionally speaking, far more serious than, for example, the Battle of Kilmichael had been for the British, mm. because the yeah. British had thousands upon yeah. thousands of, of potential uh, replacements, whereas the IRA didn't. So that certainly was creating a problem. Another problem was arrests. The, the British now were starting to get information about where some of the people who were causing trouble were living. Um, and so a number of arrests were made, and these were either subject to court martials and imprisonment or internment as well. So the IRA is being depleted either through losses in, in, in combat or through arrests. And this, I presume, then feeds into the fact that uh, quote-unquote spies begin to be assassinated, or at least that escalates. Yes, and of course, there's the, there's the famous the, the Bandon series of assassinations where there's a, a suggestion um, that there was a sectarian element to well, that, it. That's, that's, that's later. That's in the summer of 19... Ah. Uh, that, that's in sort of 1922, uh, spring of 1922. Oh, during, so that, during Civil War times? Uh, this is before the Civil War. The Civil War breaks out in the summer of 1922, but it's, in, okay. it's during the truce period. But that, that's, that's slightly different where... Uh, there's a series so the truth, of interlocking the truth, So events. again, we're jumping ahead, but just, yep. just on that, like, so the truce comes in summer 21 yep. and lasts for like a year. Where, where, when does the treaty come back? Well, the, the treaty is signed in December 1921 after about six months later. Yeah. Uh, and then you And have then it's kind of six months after that, that the, the, civil the, the war. The civil war breaks out. And, the, and the then four courts and all of this. Exactly. Kind of okay, yep, sorry, yep. right, now we've jumped ahead. But anyway, there are assassinations going on of informers. Absolutely. I mean, this is one of the, probably the, the part of the War of Independence that historically wasn't discussed very much um, in Cork because it, it is brutal. I mean, the, the IRA were correct in suspecting that a number of individuals were passing on information to the British. The British records demonstrate that, that they were receiving information. Uh, whether the IRA always got the right people, of course, uh, is, is another matter. But, of course, intelligence wars to the present day, uh, even when you have the vast type of resources that modern states have. Wow. Uh, they would testify that intelligence is always uh, a, a little bit of guesswork. And sometimes maybe even you just need to send a message. I mean, I, sorry, what I'm jumping to is Birmingham 6 and Guildford 4. Well, if you, that's, I, know, yeah, yeah. No, I know that's a completely different thing, but it's in, in, in the same case where people are identified well, and they're, the, and they're the, the IRA, something. The, the IRA insisted uh, that they, they always got the right people, uh, that they 
insisted that there was intelligence which had been obtained through a variety of different means. And, of course, the IRA had developed a very extensive, very sophisticated intelligence network of their own. And the British Army acknowledged that the IRA intelligence gathering was superior to their own. Uh, so, for example, I mean, one of the, the ones that is discussed uh, would be uh, the, the so-called anti-Sinn Féin society. Uh, in Cork City. There uh, was an anti-Sinn Féin well, society? Well, that the, was a brave the, group to have at that time. Well, the, the, there's, there's two distinct, uh, I suppose, understandings that one has. There were a number of advertisements that appeared, for example, in the Cork, ad, uh, Cork Examiner uh, from the Cork Anti-Sinn Féin Society uh, notifying anti-Republican sympathisers that uh, these this group knew who they were and they were coming after them. Now it seems almost certain. Well, it was almost. Is that certain. really the British? No, they're, they're, exactly. These are the British. These are the auxiliaries and, and blackhands, etc. But there was a, another network uh, which the IRA believed was operating, particularly in places like Black Rock and Douglas, uh, amongst the Protestant community, uh, largely Protestant, although there were some Catholics who were targeted as well. Uh, and it was believed that this community, which of course was unionist in their affiliation, uh, were the ones who were passing on information to the British. Now, of course, it was very, very difficult to be certain, albeit Florio Donoghue, who was the intelligence officer for the 1st Cork Brigade, was, was famous for his, both his ingenious ways of obtaining information and, and for being pretty scrupulous uh, in terms of being certain before clearing certain operations. Uh, for myself, I, I think there's at least a couple where I think the IRA believe uh, that they have the right individual, but it's not necessarily certain that they have. There, there's a broader historiographical controversy. Peter Hart, who, of course, uh, was made himself very unpopular uh, amongst Republicans for his uh, revisionist critique of the Battle of King Michael, where he suggested that the IRA... Uh, there was no false surrender and the IRA simply killed prisoners. That was his uh, thesis. Which, which could be possible. Well, I mean, there's been a very extensive historiographical okay. debate okay. Uh, about that. For, for what it's worth, uh, I'm not sure that he's true. He's, he's correct on that one. He's, his other, one of the other theses that he put forward was that the IRA were targeting individuals not because they were collaborating with the British, but because they simply didn't fit uh, uh, either for religious purposes or for that they were uh, of the wrong socio-economic background. Uh, and certainly there was at least one case in the aftermath of the Battle of Clonmult where the IRA believe that an individual uh, who was a down and out had passed information to the British, who, and he couldn't have done. Uh, he was passing through the area, but the British came from Victoria Barracks in Cork, uh, and this individual couldn't have got the information through to that barracks because he was in the area. So he was picked up uh, and he was executed because the, the, the sincere belief was that he had been involved, but, but he hadn't been. Uh, but again, it comes back to the point about uh, intelligence is, is never 100%. Uh, the British certainly found that out. Uh, and, and during this very disturbed period in the spring and summer of 1921, uh, you, you do have a number of pretty disturbing incidents uh, where the IRA, again, they believe that they've got the right individual. Uh, and, of course, it's very easy 100 years later to sit back and sift through what evidence exists. It was a crazy, chaotic time. Well, it was. And, and in most cases, people don't write things down, <laughs> uh, for good or for ill. Certainly, they're not going to write down their name and address uh, on a piece of information that may be passed to the British. Uh, much of this was done, being done by word of mouth. Uh, and, as it were, it was a question of putting two and two together and drawing inferences from patterns of behaviour rather than from, from evidence. But the IRA certainly... I mean, one of the things that they did, for example, was, was raiding trains uh, to, to collect the mails. Um, uh, some of this was to, to raise funds because mm -hmm. an awful lot of money was sent through for postal orders and the like through trains at that time. Uh, but they were also looking for intelligence, that information may have been sent through the post to the British as, a mean, as, as an anonymous uh, method of communication. Uh, so you do find that a number of attacks that take place on the rail network in the spring of 1921, and the IRA are looking for any information that they can find about who may have been undertaking... Uh, the, who may have been passing information on to the British. I mean, I know I expressed sort of surprise at an anti-Sinn Féin kind of a society. Uh, and of course, there's a suggestion that it's the British behind that. But then Blackrock and Douglas. But, you know, 
whilst it'd be a brave man to stand up uh, against, uh, you know, uh, I suppose a guerrilla war that was under underway, um, you can imagine that anyone invested in society or doing okay, prob- like this is a revolution that's going on. Society is about to change fundamentally. Yeah. And if you're, if you're involved in the old society and you're doing okay, you don't want this. Well, I mean, a unionist or not, yeah, you're well, kind of like, I well, want things to stay the uh, same. I suppose it's also a question of, of identity and loyalty that many of these were loyalists. Mm. Uh, in, but, in, but some sections of society are probably like, could, could you stop all of this? We're getting on grand. We just want to trade and live. And, quite possibly. And, and you do have, of course... A number of the people who are targeted would be. Some of them uh, have have wealth. Some of them. It, it well, sorry, I be... didn't necessarily mean those who were assassinated, but yeah. just through through More general, yeah. yeah through general society at the time. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there was. You know, we actually do we have any sense of what the broad levels of of, of popularity were it, around it, what was happening? It, it's very difficult. Or were there a lot of people going? This is a, what the hell's going on? When it, will this it, stop? It's very difficult to be certain. I mean, certainly based on the electoral outcomes. I mean, in, in January 1920, the, the cities across the, the country vote, and they vote heavily Sinn Féin, a lot, not uniformly. You have Labour, you have far, you, you have some unionists and so on and so forth. And, of course, in the north, you, you have a strong unionist outcome. In the summer of 1920, you have the county councils, and, again, Sinn Féin was very, very well there. Uh, and then in 1921, of course, you have the elections uh, in the summer of 1921 for both the Northern Ireland Parliament and what, the British hoped would be the Parliament of Southern Ireland. Uh, the unions do very well in the north, albeit that there is some, the, the nationalists do get, get some seats in the Northern Parliament, but not perhaps as many as they were they're expecting. Uh, but certainly in the south, Sinn Féin sweep the board. I mean, there, there isn't a single individual who stands against Sinn Féin, except for Trinity College. Uh, so, the, 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 but is there any aspect, any any element of preservation in that? Well, I mean, it, it's impossible to know. I mean, there were suggestions of intimidation coming from uh, the British side, but of course they would say that, wouldn't mm. they? Yes. The, the the IRA was saying no that this is an indication of yes. the continuing the broad popular support, broad popular support for the IRA, and they uh, and they would say that, wouldn't they? Mm. So both sides had, <laughs> had had good reason to. Mm to present the situation according as they saw it. Uh, I mean, was there 100% for support for uh, the no, Republicans? No. Well, it's highly unlikely. I mean, even based on the local election results, where you did have a strong Labour Labour showing. But Labour, again, doesn't sit in, stand in the 1921 elections as it hadn't stood in the 1918 election. So for two elections, uh, two general elections, as it were, successively, the, the Labour Party doesn't engage. And, of course, this is probably has long-term significance for, for the strength of the Labour position uh, mm. after independence. Yes, perhaps a poor choice, but maybe they were standing aside going, the, real, the, the only issue at the moment is, is, is this. Could we look at some, maybe flesh out a little uh, about the Clonmults and the Clohines or, or, yep. or, or the Dripsies as well, yep. if, if you would? Well, dri- Dripsies... And certainly what I'd like to get at some point, I, there's a dramatic... So the British success of combing the countryside begins to reap rewards, and possibly this is Clonmult, but then there's the Tom Barry story then as well, isn't yeah. there? Yeah. Well, I mean, th- there's a number of distinct points there. I mean, mm. to begin mm. with, uh, Dripsy and Monabi and Clonmult. I mean, t- to take Clonmult, um, the IRA had a flying column uh, in East Cork. Uh, it, it had, it's probably fair to say mistakes had been made with regard to that flying column staying together in the one place for too long, which as we're, we're went against one of the basic principles that flying columns had observed during that period, and which had served them very well, because once you stay in place for any length of time, uh, it becomes known. Uh, even though Clonmolt, even today, is, isn't the easiest place uh, to access, uh, it's still, there was, and it's not that far from Middleton, and Middleton, of course, had uh, an RIC barracks with uh, auxiliaries and black and tans. So, but information does get back to Victoria barracks in Cork, that this flying column is in the area. So the British dispatch troops, um, they go to Middleton, they pick up some uh, RIC there, and they proceed to the area. Now, as it happens in the first instance, they, they got the wrong house, um, which again is an indication from an intelligence point of view that things are never always uh, straightforward. Uh, and it was only when they basically moved on, and almost by accident, uh, they they came upon the the flying column in a farmhouse, and there was to a certain extent a degree of bad luck. The flying column was making preparations to move out, uh, to undertake an operation uh, over the following uh, day or so, 
so in certain respects, the IRA was in the worst possible position. Uh, it was caught unawares. It was preparing to move out. It didn't have sentries posted. Uh, that would have been the case normally. Uh, the the both the commanding officer and second in command were off scouting out the the ambush location. So you didn't have. Uh, a chain of command operating there uh, and the number of mistakes they were caught inside a uh, basically a, a shed um, with only one entrance and exit um, and of course that means that there were sitting, sitting ducks. ducks and of course they had the thatch roof so um, the, there was an exchange of gunfire some were killed in the initial exchange of gunfire uh, controversially there are a number of uh, a number of the prisoners seem to be executed and uh, the, the, the British lined them up uh, and uh, I can't remember the exact figure off the top of it but I think seven of those who died uh, are, are shot uh, in effect uh, against the wall of uh, the shed uh, and certainly the even though of course there was no inquest at this point in, the, in terms of definitively demonstrating the nature of the wounds the British army themselves conducted all the inquests uh, but the universal testimony of those who survived and, and the, the bodies afterwards uh, would indicate that they were shot basically all at point-blank range. Um, so that was a huge, it was a huge uh, defeat for the IRA in, in East Cork. I mean, it was, it, the East Cork area had been very active, uh, perhaps not as, as active in terms of taking the huge operations that had happened in West Cork, but uh, in, in places like Cove and, and the whole of... But, but some people said, that was, is that Liam Lynch was the commander of... L Liam Lynch is, is more... Technically, he, he has some control over there, but it's more City North Cork, uh, Liam, Liam Lynch. Okay, because uh, I, I just read something that it suggested, like, while Tom Barry uh, and, and uh, the number three brigade in, yeah. in, in West Cork, you know, receive a lot of acclaim for their operations, yeah. he was perhaps more reckless in, in the bigger operations yeah. and that there was actually a smartness in doing smaller hit-and-run type well, and, things. And, and that, that was the point, because the, the bigger the operation, the more likely that information would get to the British about what was being planned. Uh, the more difficult it is to control all your forces uh, in an engagement. Um, and to a certain extent, by dropping hit-and-run tactics and by standing and fighting, you're playing into the British hands. Mm. Uh, and certainly if you have a look at Cross Barry, uh, the Cross Barry ambush where... Well, just on Clonmel, so about yeah. six escape, but they're tracked down and they're... They, they, they don't escape, they surrender uh, because there was, no, there was no... And they are lined up. Uh, and, and basically shot. But, but some did survive the incident and they're the ones who told the, the There were a small... One was left for dead. Uh, so, and, and of course, you also had people in the locality that women had to come and get the bodies because um, the bodies were just simply left there. Uh, yes. And uh, it was... It was it was a and Clohean is a separate thing. It doesn't... Clohean is a number of... Again, a number of RSC, uh, a number of IRA... Uh, are cornered but, but, and, but basically the British are starting to have some success they are because and they, they're getting word it's partly because they understand a little bit more about how the IRA operates mm. uh, and, and it's also partly because they accept that this is a war and the British have to start using wartime tactics the idea that they're, they're, they're not dealing with a murder gang uh, they're not dealing with a gang of, of hoodlums or, or toughs they're dealing with an army uh, and they have to show the respect, as it were, in professional terms that an army is due. But they also have to, by virtue of the same coin, uh, start dealing out in, in lethal actions, uh, as an army does. But So you have a Dripsy. Again, that's a situation where a local uh, Protestant uh, landowner, uh, Mrs Lindsay, informed the British in Ballancolig that this ambush was in wait, uh, was being laid. The, the men are, are caught. Uh, the IRA then kidnapped Mrs. Lindsay and said, if our men are executed, she goes. She will go as well. Uh, and and in turn, both uh, are executed. Uh, so and, and 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 you also have Moore Abbey uh, halfway between. You know, it's amazing both. when we talk about these things, but you bring it down to like Mrs. Lindsay. Yes, yes, absolutely. Mrs. Lindsay I mean, from Drips. Well, it, it, do, it, do you it, know it what was, I mean? Like yeah. when you bring it down to the actual individual and her yes. name, and and yeah. and it's important to remember the names uh, mm. of everybody involved mm. because. I suppose, in one sense, it's the intimacy of, of mm. the, the, the War of Independence in Cork, which is so striking, in contrast to, say, the, the mass slaughter on the Western Front, mm. where you have yeah. sort of thousands or tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands yeah. of casualties uh, on the one day between the two sides. Uh, it, this is much more intimate. I mean, this is sort of small numbers of, of individuals. Uh, and, and to the present day, the, it, obviously in the localities, 
uh, where these uh, events occurred, they are they are commemorated. Um, so the so you have a problem. The IRA has a problem now. What the IRA does is, first of all, it changes its own tactics. Uh, here, the IRA, as it were, started to to learn a lesson of avoiding doing the, the type of big ambushes uh, that had been operated here, and the IRA go back to doing what they had, that had served them so well in 1919 to 1920. Well, it's probably also fair to say that elsewhere in the country, uh, in parts of the country where the IRA hadn't been as active as it had been in Cork, uh, there is a determined policy on the part of GHQ in Dublin to encourage IRA activities elsewhere to take some of the pressure off. Uh, I, I don't think it did take much pressure off because the British kept as many troops in Cork. It's, it's, it wasn't a question that they moved troops elsewhere. If anything, they simply brought new troops in uh, and, and deployed them elsewhere. So Cork remains the epicentre, uh, however much the effort was made to try and lighten, lighten the load. But there was absolutely no question at all uh, of the IRA being beaten in the summer of 1921. The British army subsequently, particularly the General McCready, constantly said we have the IRA in the run, but there was very little evidence of that. I came across an absolutely fascinating memorandum written just before the truce, a few, within a few weeks. This was by one of the commanders of the British Tank Corps, uh, who, who did a tour of inspection in Ireland. And his conclusion was that it, the situation reminded him of the Battle of Passchendaele, uh, where there was this sense of utter drift, that, that nothing that the British army could do would make any difference. Uh, it wasn't a question of necessarily the, the belief that they were going to lose, or, or even necessarily bad morale, but simply a question of hopelessness, that, that they couldn't get to grips with, with the enemy. And, and he, he pointed out that you have this, they had this strange situation where the British army, which was supposed to be liberating the Irish people from uh, the, the burden of this murder gang, the British army couldn't move except in massive force anywhere, whereas the civilian population uh, freely went about their business, or at least as freely as they could, uh, based upon the, the dislocation. So the besieger, the, those who were supposed to be the, the forces which were maintaining law and order, uh, can't move. And the people who are supposed to need these forces of law and order were going about their business without any great any great problem at all. So even within the ranks of the British Army, there was an awareness, uh, at, at least privately, uh, that the IRA hadn't been defeated. And, and even General McCready, who was a professional optimist and was continuously pushing forward the line that the IRA was on the run and the British had the better of them, uh, he, uh, roughly about the same time, he sent a memo to the British government saying that if, if we haven't got this won by October, and of course things start moving the IRA's direction again when the autumn and winter comes in shorter nights uh, and so on and so forth he said that the entire garrison in in ireland would have to be replaced because the, the because of this sense of fatigue of, of and, and demoralization exactly. and so you would have to in effect bring every reserve that the british had strip anything away from empire and and deploy a whole new uh, army in ireland and of course from a from an intelligence point of view that would have been very serious because you would have lost the, the knowledge that the, yeah. the troops. Uh, it's it's uh, mad, isn't it? It's like yeah. it's like they were grasping at, at, at air and they couldn't. Well, they were, and, and of course now, and this is again where the, the political and the military intersect, because in the summer of 1921, the British have got partition in place, so you, the British now can publicly say that Sinn Fein don't speak for the whole of Ireland. Eamon de Valera, as, as president of the Doyle, cannot speak for the whole of Ireland because this Parliament of Northern Ireland has been created. Mm. James so they created facts on the ground. Exactly, exactly. So th that created a certain space by which an invitation could be sent out to... Mm. Uh, it's like they stalled it almost or something, or well, they, I mean, they jammed the, something into the, the, into the works the, the, and the, said, the, now the, let's talk. The, during the... the the Westminster debate on the treaty in December 1921, because famously, of course, you had the Doyle debate on the treaty, but the British had their own parliamentary mm. debate, mm. and there are a number of very severe critics. Remember, the British government at this time is has a small number of liberals, led by Lloyd George, but the vast majority of them are Tories, who detest the IRA, uh, and the very thought of talking to Sinn Féin was absolutely anathema, let alone creating a self-governing dominion. <laughs> uh, but it's an indication of, of the uh, 
morass in which the British found yeah. themselves in the summer of 1921. Oh, uh, that even the Tories had to start now speaking a language that had been the preserve of, of what they regard as the know, lunatic I, fringe. Not I have to say, while, while all of this is horrific and everything else, in, 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 in the last few minutes, there's... You you really really get back to the sense of like we really drove them out like I mean yes. the Irish people yep. said we've had enough and we are driving you at, as out of as much of this country as we can well, and very, Tories or not and conservative and loyalist and whatever you may be we've had enough it's over get out. There's a very interesting testimony from what was then Major Bernard Law Montgomery, subsequently of course in the Second World War Field Marshal Bernard Law Montgomery of El Alamein and so on and so forth. He was the brigade major in Cork. He was in charge of, as it were, Cork barracks. He didn't necessarily have a, a field command, um, but of course he, he served extensively in the First World War. And in his memoirs, he talks of his time in Cork very, very briefly. For somebody who spent sort of a good part of a year in Cork, I mean, he, 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 it's clear from his memoirs, he detested every single second, primarily because as a professional soldier, he saw what was being done to the army uh, by by what the IRA was doing to them. So he then says, just to come back Sorry, to his point about yeah. uh, driving them out, he said that he said that making the decision to pull out was the right one. He said that he had no doubt if the British had decided to completely smash the whole of Ireland, going full-scale martial law, deploying every single troop that you had, you, you probably could, during the period that you applied that, could have brought the IRA to its knees. But he said, as soon as you release the off, pressure... they're back. Exactly. Uh, and he said that, that there was no point... Uh, but what he also said is that the people who were best able to <laughs> prevent this happening again were the Irish themselves. Uh, and, of course, I think there he's foreshadowing the split uh, within yeah. Republicans. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, that's yeah, yeah. interesting, yeah. Is this kind of the first time this sort of tactics or these tactics have been employed globally I mean well you had had during the Boer War mm, uh, yeah. you had had guerrilla tactics being used but you'd also had conventional tactics being used uh, the British had been able to prevail in South Africa they'd been able to enforce their will upon the Boer Republics uh, and you had been able to the British had been in effect able to bring the Boers into the empire keep them in the empire so people like Jan Smuts uh, and the like uh, were became loyal servants of the British Empire. Mm. Uh, of course, during the 18th century, the British had lost North America, mm. had lost the 13 colonies mm. and what was to become the United States. Uh, Feels like that was more conventional war. Well, it, 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 and it was a different type of war. I mean, it wasn't obviously mechanised. Uh, mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, was, it was much further away, if, yeah. if nothing else. Yeah. But certainly... Uh, in terms of... You know, is that part of why the British couldn't get a handle on it? Because no one had had to encounter this level of well, the, the, type of guerrilla war. Well, I mean, it's before. interesting that uh, Lord French, who had served in South Africa uh, and had seen the extent to which the British were prepared to go, uh, he was talking about using, for example, concentration camps. Uh, not Nazi death camps, mm. but the type of concentration camps that had been witnessed during the... Uh, the Boer War, where you simply rounded up every civilian in a disturbed area, put them into these camps with, of Goodness course, me. very serious consequences. And then the area outside became, in effect, a free-fire zone. Jeez. Now, now, that's somebody who had uh, sort of been part of that policy 20 years before in South Africa, and he was pushing it again. And it doesn't take a huge stretch of the imagination to, to envisage something like that happening in West Cork that the civilian population of West Cork being rounded up uh, and, and being put into these, these camps. And, of course, the, the death toll within the camps, not necessarily because people are being killed, per se, by acts of commission, but acts of omission in terms of hygiene, in terms of feeding and so on and so Would forth. America have stood for that? Well, and this is another problem. that The British are very conscious of the, and they're getting the bad publicity. As well, aren't they? They, they are. Uh, now, an American presidential election had taken place uh, in late 1920 with the new President Harding coming in in 1921. And America first. And interestingly, and, and America yeah. first. The, 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 the Republicans hadn't, the Irish Republicans hadn't succeeded in getting either party to commit to recognition of Irish independence or Irish sovereignty. Um, and that, of course, had been a diplomatic defeat, albeit it's probably fair to say it, that was never likely to happen. Uh, but the, the British realised that that whoever 
independent this new president was in terms of freedom from, from pressure, which Woodrow Wilson had experienced during the debate over the ratification of the Versailles Treaty from the Irish side. Uh, and of course, the, the Irish weren't as strong in the Republican Party as they had been in the Democrat, as they were in the Democratic Party. But you still had uh, the administration of, of President Harding. Uh, the British needed to, to get on their good side for things like disarmament conferences uh, uh, and the like, because the British wished to, to see general disarmament, uh, because as, as the victor in the war, uh, <laughs> they, they wished to see the defeated forces not having the excuse and the ability to, to rearm. So they needed the American goodwill in the number of other mm. initi initiatives to be pursued throughout the world. And one of the things that was making this problem, that this difficult and problematic, was the situation in Ireland. So even though there's not so much direct evidence of the Americans saying to the British what the hell is going on, certainly if you have a look at the American press, uh, in the so, like, you know, it, 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 I, I don't know how this sounds, but it might be one thing in the wide open expanse of a, of a large geographical area like South Africa to, 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 to round up everybody and put them into camp. Yeah. Like doing it next door to yes. in I, Europe in I, the full glare of the American And in press. the aftermath of a war uh, which you have fought with America and France, where you've lost so many of your own countries in the name of the rights of small nations <laughs> uh, to, for, for the pursuit of the principle of self And the League of Nations came out of all of yes, Versailles of and all the, of that, No, no the, the Americans weren't part of the League of Nations because the Americans didn't ratify the, the Treaty of Versailles for a number of reasons, mm. including the fact that part of the Treaty of Versailles was that, in effect, made provision that there could be no subsequent change of borders uh, without general agreement. And, of course, if Ireland was still within the United Kingdom when the shutters came down, then there could be no possibility of the Irish, in effect, unilaterally gaining their independence. Mm. Uh, but the Irish do become a member of the League of Nations once they gain uh, the, the position of the Irish Free State uh, mm. under the treaty. So let me get you on some of the specifics. I'm really enjoying this conversation again, Gabriel. Thank you very much. Uh, it's great to have someone in front of me uh, telling me these things who I can then kind of ask these teasing questions that you might wonder when you read it or watch it in a documentary or hear about it and you go, oh, what? And, and I'm able to put them to you and, 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 and get some kind of a response. It's yep. great. Uh, can I carry you around all the time? <laughs> um, the Cross Barry one is very dramatic, isn't it? It is. And, and, it and is. There, is there a Bandon uh, raid then as well or Bandon Barracks raid that's well, fairly the, the, dramatic? The, the, Bandon was another, but Cross Barry is, is significant, mm. uh, largely because it could have been another catastrophe. Mm. Uh, and probably by rights in terms of uh, the, the situation that developed, it, it probably should have been a disaster for the IRA. Uh, it's not so much it, it's a victory for the IRA, for example, in the way that Kilmichael had been, where they're able to wipe out the opponent. Uh, there are simply too many of the British uh, to wipe out. There's some dispute as to the total numbers of British. Tom Barry put the figure over a 1,000. Flo Begley, uh, who was uh, another participant, he suggested the figure closer to about 300, 350. Uh, nobody on the, on the Irish side were necessarily uh, be able to, to put their head above and, uh, count. and start, and but, start but, counting. So is it a flying column that gets cornered with it, one of these countryside sweeps? The, 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 in effect, that's what happens, yes. Uh, and the IRA were hoping to launch an ambush but again, th their position becomes known. The British start moving troops into a position to try and take them out, um, and they fail. I mean, the IRA is able to uh, attack particularly a number of lorries uh, where the troops had dismounted and, and gone somewhere else. The IRA were able to attack and destroy the lorries, uh, were able to kill some of the, the uh, parties that were defending them, and then as the troops come back, the IRA were able to, to slip the, the net, as it were, which is tightening around them, uh, and they're able to make their good their escape in the one direction that the British hadn't protected. Um, so it, what that is perhaps is, is more a reflection of, and the British realise this, uh, of the ability of the IRA, as it were, as field commanders, to respond to difficult position and still to come out on top. Uh, I suppose that's that's the significance. That would be the difference, let's say, with the Battle of Kimichael, where everything is in the IRA's favour. Uh, they have the element of surprise. They have a relatively small number of opponents. They have a perfect ambush position. Uh, but I guess they're caught. They're, 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 yeah. they're kind of cornered. Yeah, so, well, like, they've made some errors. They have, they have, and they're, but they're able to get out. Um, and are they lucky or, or, or smart? Well, both. Uh, the, the, had the timing, had the British handled their forces probably a little bit mm. better. And again, this comes back to the issue of, of how difficult the British found it to coordinate forces coming from different directions where you don't have 
radio operators, for example, that, 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 can, that you know exactly where they are. Um, so the IRA, in one sense, are the hunted because they're, for want of a better phrase, and this shouldn't be taken as indication of my uh, in, uh, sensitivities, but rats in the trap. I mean, they're, mm. they're the ones who are caught. Mm. Mm. Uh, but the, the one advantage they have is that because they're in a small area, they're able to sort of know where each other are and they're able to coordinate and, and in effect make a, a reasonably good uh, escape in, in ordinary military orderly military fashion. Whereas the British are coming from different directions uh, and the British simply don't know. I mean, there, there, is, there is at least one party of auxiliaries that should have cut off the escape route, but they didn't. Um, and, and, and that certainly would be one area where had, had that escape route been blocked, then it could certainly have been uh, a, a, a disaster. And how many men are were so Tom Barry and his and his flying column fight their way out they, of this British are, now, how, how many men are we talking? Uh, you're talking about dozens. I mean, uh, and, and, and scores ultimately. Now, what happens then is that the, the flying column uh, do, isn't completely disbanded, but it doesn't undertake the size of operations again. Again, pr primarily because they realise that to do so. And might they have been sighted? You know, is there any like recognition possibility? Or you well, know, I mean, the, the British at this point again intelligence. Uh, if, if, if well, maybe they know who a lot of these people well, exactly are. Well, anyway. I mean, if somebody, if they come calling to a farmhouse, and the young man who is known to be a, an old Republican isn't there, and an ambush had taken place uh, not too long before, the British start putting two and two together. Uh, and, and certainly in cases where they, they certainly know, they simply burnt the farmhouse down. Uh, of course, then what that does is that it makes it more difficult for the IRA to, to dissolve back into the community and, mm. and helps keep the, the flying columns together. But the flying column in, in, in West Cork, they change their tactics again. They, they don't uh, start attempting any large-scale ambushes because, again, they realise that this would uh, create problems. But they still continue to carry out sniping operations uh, and just annoying the hell out of the British and make it, making sure that the British had to assume that they could be ambushed in force anywhere mm. uh, so it's a bit like sort of if you get the reputation as an early riser you can stay in bed until noon <laughs> um, i mean if the ira get the reputation for being able to hit the british alley and everywhere the british have to assume that yeah. and, and alter their yeah. plan of operations accordingly I, I mentioned before that the the site at kilmichael i think is 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 wonderful it's a wonderful spot to go down and see i've not actually been to the museum nearby uh what location is that in? There's a mm. there's a small museum nearby. Uh, do you know what? The next time you're talking, is it Kilt? No, not Kilmurray. Yes, yes, sorry. Okay, yeah, Kilt, yeah. Well, that's that's a little bit. It's not that oh, is it? Yeah. Uh, Kilmurray is it's outstanding. It's absolutely. Yeah, I see them on Twitter. The Kilmurray Historical I mean, it, it, Society. It, it, it is. I think it's it's small enough, but 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 it's very small. But it's it's built to literally the highest possible specification for a museum that would apply oh. to national museums. Cool. This is built because they they got the, the all the consultants and the, the, so they've got air conditioning, light. Uh, and the, it's the a well type. done job. Oh, it is perfect. Great. And then they have the actual exhibits there, and they're changed quite frequently as well. well I look and, forward and, to and it, down it, there. it is a case study in how rural Ireland can produce, so a small little village can produce a, a world class result. It really is. Mm, great. I look forward to going to there, but the site itself at Kilmichael is worth visiting, but yeah. I think you said to me last time, Crossbarry itself is a... Is a Crossbarry where has where a, do you go? Down to halfway and yeah, take and a take right? Because right, yeah. I've been down that way playing football for years. I, I, I've never spotted it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just a little bit, it's a little bit down there. Okay. Uh, so it's... So uh, just go and have a look and you'll find it, Dave. I mean, it's a very <laughs> impressive monument and there are a number of monuments that were unveiled. And does it, does it have, like, sorry, at, at Kilmichael, there's, there's it displays... Doesn't, it doesn't have... Well, now, unless, unless, it, I haven't could, been down there myself in the last... Because I think the there was a plan to try to upgrade it for this Quite time. Part, I mean, I haven't been down there myself. Mm. Uh, I probably should have been. Uh, but with COVID, <laughs> yeah. uh, you can't really travel Is the Bandon Barracks thing a part of 1921, the first six months? Well, it, it, it's a... That that's an operation, mm. but you also have things like Ross Carberry Barracks uh, is attacked in the spring of 1921. So the the, the what, what happens is that the IRA now attacking a number of barracks, not so much to take them, although of mm, course just hitting runs, thrown, but, thrown, but, but but just to keep the British on their toes mm. and, and to know that that even in the towns, if the British occupied the towns and the IRA occupied the interland. The IRA, if the British were going to send these expeditions out into their rural hinterland where the IRA were in control, the IRA could reciprocate and could keep the British on their toes 
in the very places where the British thought that they were secure. And that, what that really did is that it, it really unnerved the British. I mean, this is the thing that helps to, to destroy the, the troops' morale. I mean, the, the troops had been used to, in the First World War, going behind the lines, going for rest and recuperation, going to whatever the troops They're do. They're harassed. In uh, exactly. Whereas the, even in their own barracks, mm, there's they no cannot peace. feel that they're, yeah, wow. that, they're, that they're at rest. You and, can imagine and, the stress that that and will that, cause. Of course. And, and constant that, agitation of... So even even when you're uh, at home, as it were, in your barracks, you, you're still having to assume that you could be a target. The instant you leave the door, again, you can't do what you can back in England, where mm. you, if you leave the barracks, you have a, a weekend pass, you can mm. go to the pub. You yeah. can't do that. So none of the things that troops are, are used to, as it were, to deal with, with the problems of, uh, that troops have, none of those options are open. And, and you get to rat- a certain extent sort of cabin fever. Yeah, they're uh, the rats in the trap as well. Exactly. Um, mad. Uh, who are the brains behind this? Like who? Because, you know, I know that the Cork uh, units were quite independent and would often sort of countermand GHQ instructions. But but who? Like, you know, this, this is, you know, it's, it's, quite, well, it's, it's, it's remarkably sophisticated in it a way, is. isn't it? It's interesting. Uh, Richard Mulcahy was the chief of staff of the volunteers and, and to a certain extent in, in charge of GHQ. Uh, now, Richard Mulcahy, of course, went pro-treaty. Uh, he was seen as the person who was perhaps most directly involved with the civil war executions, although I think that there are a number of uh, other people who are complicit. So his reputation amongst many of the, the anti-treaty IRA was, was very low and, and remains low to the present day. But during the War of Independence, uh, while GHQ couldn't exercise a, any great control over what was happening in Cork, to the extent to which it could exercise control, particularly in terms of directing weapons and so on and so forth, there was a lot of the people who subsequently went anti-treaty during that period sort of expressed tremendous admiration for what Mulcahy had done. Uh, but in terms of, of the decision-making, it's local. I mean, it is the people who are in charge. Yeah, tactics and responses exactly. And, exactly. And, and what to do and when to do it. And Exactly. I mean, and, and it's smart, bo- smart people. It's, it's bottom-up, uh, as it were. It's a Republican campaign, not just in terms of Mm. in support of a republic as a political form. Mm. But it is, as it were, done of the people, by the people, mm. for the people. Mm. Uh, and it's a campaign which, in some respects, is almost the, the inverse of conventional military, which is top-down. This is, is, as it were, it's it's bottom-up. Uh, now, there are still conventional lines of command. There's still uh, an understanding that the IRA has to, to follow orders. But the nature of guerrilla campaigns, the successful campaigns, are the ones where you do have a, a sense of of industry and of initiative uh, and you have capable commanders and certainly all those qualities were in abundance in Cork. By the way, I'm not sure if I got a, a, a clear answer from you on the idea of, you know, so you mentioned the Boer War had, had but it, this is still a relatively new type of conflict globally. Yep. Is it that is, fair it to is. say? Well, it is, but I suppose it's, it's also coming after a, a war in which sort of conventional warfare had become the norm and everybody had become used to mass conscript armies where you have artillery, uh, where you have these mass engagements. And the British Army... now, But, of course, remember, the British Army had extensive experience in the empire. Uh, so you had... But never quite like this. Like this, is, this becomes a model, like does this. it not? It, it, it certainly inspires... Both the political and, and military elements do inspire... The, the military and political elements in other parts of the empire. Uh, but there had been, uh, for example, in India, uh, the British had, had experience in sort of the northwest frontier where you ha- would have disturbed areas and they would have to, to carry out uh, raids, as it were, to try and suppress dissenting mm. villages. So it wasn't a question of being completely un, uh, unused okay. to it. Uh, to do it so close to home, mm. under the glare of international publicity... Uh, and to be bested in the game, uh, as as much as you were getting on top, uh, that was that was certainly very very difficult for the British. So let's uh, thank you again. Let's sort of wrap up with. So when does fighting stop, and and how, who who or how does that play out? Where where Collins goes over, you know, with the, you know, he didn't want to go, did he? Is no, De Valera over in the states the whole time? By no, the way, no, De Valera had come back at Christmas, okay. nineteen twenty. So there's there. Are, Pressure coming from all sides. There's undoubtedly a sense of war weariness on the part of the civilian population. You can understand where practically all aspects of everyday life are interfered with, uh, whether it's the economy, whether it's sport, uh, uh, 
or, or any other way that you can think of. Uh, life is difficult, and after two and a half years of, of progressively worsening conditions and the prospect of, of it only getting worse, uh, then it's not surprising that you do have evidence of war weariness, even amongst sections of the population that supported the Republic. It wasn't a question of diminishing support for the Republic, uh, but it is a question of, of all wars, uh, if they're not won relatively quickly. You tend to have evidence of, of diminishing support. Uh, you do have the IRA's ability to continue operations has been compromised. Uh, that you do have, you've had losses. You've had large numbers of, of your recruits and members uh, arrested and interned. You've had numbers killed or executed. And you have a number of others facing execution, uh, of course, and that, that was also a consideration. Uh, you hadn't been able to to get the large numbers uh, of weapons uh, imported from elsewhere you've 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 had some success that that might help you turn the tide uh, and you realize for a number of months the british are going to have the the tactical advantage because of the long evenings uh, and so on and so forth so th there is as it were an awareness that a short period of a truce could actually benefit the ira uh, if it was necessary to go back to the war. So from the Republican side, there was a perception that from a military point of view, there would be certain advantages to a truce. There was also an awareness that from the, the political point of view, uh, that if the other routes, for example, international recognition had failed, there was a growing awareness that you were going to have to talk to the British at some point in time. Mm -hmm. And the question is then trying to find some basis where you can achieve your aims as far as you possibly can. Uh, even if you haven't been able to militarily drive the British out. On the British side, of course, there are also, uh, there's also momentum for uh, uh, truce. The British are tired. The British public is getting sick. Uh, the, the, it is costly. It is, it is creating problems elsewhere in empire. Uh, from a military point of view, as I mentioned earlier on, there was a, a, a belief that you're going to have to replace the entire garrison and with an entirely new army, and this would create problems elsewhere in the empire. And also in political terms, uh, there was a belief that you had, with the creation of Northern Ireland, that you had given yourself a bargaining chip uh, with, with regard to the possibility of getting rid of this border. Uh, and there was a belief that you could beat these tyros, these uh, inexperienced Republicans in negotiations and perhaps achieve everything that you were trying to achieve militarily, but mm. without... Uh, and you have the cost. Wow, the game was a foot. The game was a foot. Uh, and, and that's where you start having... God. Now, there is one little footnote, which I would say is with regard to the truce and what it meant. The British had consistently used the language of the murder gang to describe what the Republicans had done. Almost overnight, they, they changed that rhetoric and start talking about De Valera as the, the head of... of recognised head of the vast majority of the Irish people. Typical British sort of U-turn when it suits. Well, they probably needed it in order to justify what they were about to do. Well, and this is this is the, the point is that but, so they then call a truce, and they by by virtue of creating a truce, they they in effect give the IRA belligerent status under international law and military law. Uh, the British recognise the IRA as an army. Uh, now, General McCready was absolutely aghast <laughs> at that. Yeah. I mean, on the one hand, he said, well, we're just about to get them beaten and now we've had the rug pulled out from under our feet. Yeah. But he also said, if we go back, if this truce breaks down, we can't arrest them and imprison them. Uh, we can't execute them because that would be a war crime. Uh, now, you could still capture them in the field, uh, but you, even if an IRA unit was captured, for example, as it had been at Dripsy uh, or, or at Morn Abbey and so on and so forth, you couldn't execute them because they were prisoners of war. Now, technically, I would argue that the British courts had already declared a war was occurring even before the truce. So I, I would argue that technically those war crimes had already been well, committed. I'm almost tempted, except it brings us to somewhere else, but, yeah. you know, the weariness and the fatigue post-War uh, of Independence and Civil War, because yeah. in a way, you know, w was there ever an effort to f seek justice for those executions or reparations or...? No, well, I mean, there were compensation uh, for anybody who, who died and, and so on and so forth, and that's part of the really? treaty and so on and so forth. It was money yeah. paid. But, but, but 
I mean, how do you replace a life? Ah, <laughs> no, no, but still, just to, like factually, like that people. Compensa- yeah, I really? mean, uh, and 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 wow. uh, there was also, of course, the, the pensions, which is for active service, not for death, as it were. But there was mm. a separate. But that's scale. but that's from the Irish government, isn't it? Yeah, I, I yeah. mean, I mean, kind of from the British government. No, to... no, I mean the the, the British. <laughs> You know, for what they did, yeah, sort of no. thing. I mean, well, the, the, you know, in or, one or, sense, no, the, the, it's it's part of it. The British are prepared to pay for, let's say, Clonmel. Let's say Clonmel, where they're where where yeah. where they're seven yeah. shots. Yeah. Yeah. They, they pay for the buildings. Uh, it, in effect, they argue in both sides. It's up to both sides to 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 look after their own. So they they say we're not going to Afterwards. to look, to look to the uh, the Irish government to compensate yes. us for yes. this for yes. our, our soldiers lost. So. Yes. Although they're soldiers, whereas in this case they're they, they had claimed they were civilians. Yeah. But anyway, look, I'm tying myself up into knots <laughs> today. <laughs> but, it, but 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 certainly the, the issue of the truce, declaring it a formal truce, uh, created problems from a, a legal point of view. Uh, if ever that truce collapsed, because the the British couldn't start. I mean, the execution policy had been a big threat for them. That they argued that this was had had an effect in in terms of deterring. The IRA from carrying out operations, deterring people from joining the IRA, uh, and the fact that the, you couldn't resume that policy if ever uh, a shooting match had, had broken out again would have been a handicap for them. Yes. Wow, it's just I swear, every time I talk, it's such a, a morass of s- of stuff. <laughs> but like, what an interesting time to um, have been alive, and a difficult time to have been alive yes. as well. Uh, Gabriel Doherty, UCC History Department, thank you very much for sharing your insight into that very interesting time and I look forward to uh, uh, chatting with you again or, or, or taking us further through 1921 from, well, wow, that, that, the, the difficult truce negotiations or the treaty negotiations, I yeah. should say, and, 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 and all that came after that. It gets just even more difficult after well, it, that. Well, it becomes, I mean, it, it, the shooting stops. Mm. Uh, which is good, which is <laughs> but, good. But, but the verbal sniping... Uh, continues mm. and, and certainly uh, a number of very difficult decisions had to be taken uh, during the treaty negotiations and, and you have a lot of things which are behind the scenes uh, and it's only in relatively recent years that we've had the, the full release of, of many of the documents that give us now a pretty complete picture mm. at least of the official negotiations mm. but you still have a number of, of, of behind the scenes of, of who's talking to whom outside the treaty, outside the, the mm. committee rooms and the conference rooms, etc. So uh, the centenary, of, obviously, of the, the treaty negotiations and the treaty itself are, are coming up in the second half of this year. So uh, that's going to give rise to... More debate more and discussion. Uh, whether COVID allows us to to host events in, in mm. person, of course, that's mm. one of the great tragedies mm. uh, of, of the last year and a half is that so much of these events which we've been talking about have been occurring, but so little have been able to be commemorated in, in the manner which the localities uh, would have liked because because of COVID. Well, I might not have gotten access to you if there had been True. so many of them. <laughs> so maybe it's worked out well, well for me for this Cork History yeah. Matters podcast. Thank you very much, Gabriel Doherty. You've been listening to a Red FM podcast. For more extra content, go to redextra.ie.